Alrighty. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Genesis 13. Um, under normal circumstances, I would read this, but we're actually going to go over all of 13. So we'll go over it together in a minute. Um, but thus far in Genesis, what we've encountered is Abram. Um, and he's been called. He's been called to go to a land that he did not know where the land was. And by faith, he went. Um, and with that comes promises, the promises that God would be with him, the promises that he would have generations upon generations, that the land would be his. Um, now, we do, though, have a hiccup in the story, and that is what happened last time that we were here, and that is that Abram went down to Egypt, and he was willing, basically, to lie so that his life would be spared, but Sarai would have to go um, and basically go to Pharaoh. And so we see this kind of humanity again with Abram. We see this guy who is not the most perfect. He makes mistakes. And he's like me and like you. Um, however, by faith, we know what happens. So let's continue forward. Uh, verses 1 through 7. So Abram went up from Egypt, and he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's flock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. All right. So from Egypt, we learn that Abram, Sarai, their possessions, and Lot went back up into Canaan, in particular the Negev. Um, as we remember, the Negev was the southernmost part in Canaan, closest to Egypt. Along with this, we remember much of Abram's possessions, which grew quite a bit because of his encounter with Pharaoh, where Pharaoh gave him all this stuff for Sarai, and Pharaoh never asked for it back. So he still got from even his mistake. Now, regardless of this, they did not stay in the Negev for long, but instead moved on back into Bethel, where he had originally stayed and built an altar. While staying there, he continued to worship God at the altar, as we see he called upon the name of the Lord. Now, some scholars note how Abram did not build an altar to God while in Egypt, and how he did not even call to his name while there either. So some believe this is a reflection of Abram's possible belief that God's power was in Canaan, though this likely was definitely scattered by God's afflicting Pharaoh. Um, and so I think, again, what we learn from that scenario is that God is not only God of Canaan, but he is the God of the whole universe. And I think that's the first time that Abram really recognizes this truth. Still, the family returns to where they began. But once there, we find strife, in particular between Lot and Abram. As it is, Lot has become blessed as well as Abram, which may be a reflection of God's promise that those who bless Abram will also be blessed themselves. We can surmise that as Lot continued to journey with Abram, he was receiving the blessings which God had promised to Abram and through Abram. But this blessing remarkably led to a problem of lack of room for both of them. 
Uh, their livestock were too numerous and their workers were quarreling over it. Despite the Canaanites and the Perizzites also dwelling in the land, there was not enough room for both Abram and Lot. So, verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zeor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. At this point we find a different Abram, perhaps, than the one we found in Egypt. Whereas in Egypt he would seemingly do much in order to refrain from confrontation, including lie, here we find an Abram who recognizes the strife and seeks a peaceful resolution right away. So, what does he propose? He proposes to Lot to separate, giving Lot the choice where he should go. Wherever Lot decides to go, Abram would just go the other way. So Lot looks at the land and considers his options. He sees the Jordan Valley, and there is so much to like in what he sees. Indeed, it is compared to the Garden of the Lord, which is the Garden of Eden. This makes sense when we consider how well watered the garden was, with the rivers flowing through it. So it was with the Jordan Valley at the time. He also compares it to the land of Egypt in the direction of Zeor. As we remember, the Nile flows right through upper and lower Egypt. They actually go upper, lower, it's weird. Um, But still, it goes right through Egypt. And because of this, it was a well-watered area. Thus we find a good comparison with Egypt in this plain. So Lot chooses to go this direction. Now it is interesting to see how the text describes him going east. This terminology reflects that of Adam and Eve after the garden. And Cain, he went further east as well as the Babylonians. They went east. Every time they're going east in Genesis thus far, um, it foreshadows something. Thus the text is foreshadowing what is going to come, especially as it warns that this all occurs before the Lord destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. We find then that Abram stays in Canaan and settles right in the heart of it. Meanwhile, Lot goes outside or just on the edge of the land of Canaan promised to Abram. Indeed, even going so far as to settle near or in the cities of the plain, in particular Sodom. Sodom is then described again as a great sinner against the Lord. Again, we find foreshadowing of things to come. Lot, in making the logical choice, choosing a rich land, a pleasant land, like that of the Garden of Eden. Unfortunately, this choice will also lead to his utmost ruin. Alrighty, the final verses of this chapter. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord.
So once Lot separates from Abram, the Lord speaks again to Abram. Um, In this moment, the promise is restored to Abram. That the land which God is going to give to Abram and his offspring forever is the one which he sees. The land is an important aspect of Old Testament thought. And it shows throughout the history of the people of Abraham how the land is so significant. It is their land. But not only is this the case, this promise again of land, but also of offspring. The offspring statement is one of significance. God promises to make Abram's offspring as the dust of the earth. Obviously, the statement is meant to portray a great multitude which will belong to Abram. And again, the land is emphasized as God encourages Abram to walk it, uh, take it all in, because it all belongs to God, and God is then giving it to Abram and his offspring. So Abram moves and settles by the oaks of Mamre at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. If the oaks of Mamre are similar to the oaks found previously, then this is actually a site of worship for the pagans. But as it is, Abram does not worship any other deity but the Lord. All right. The main point of this section is to set up the story which is about to occur with Abram, Lot, Sodom, and Gomorrah. Likewise, it sets up the upcoming covenant God makes with Abram and the promises which are established with it. Yet the question remains for everyone to consider. And that is how Lot, the apparent heir, is no longer with Abram. How will Abram have an almost uncountable offspring if he has no offspring to speak of even at this point. So there's tension and question in which the answers still need to be found and we'll find those within the next few weeks. Alright, so the application for this text. Within this text we come to the division between Abram and Lot. Thus far in the story, it seems obvious that Lot would be the heir apparent for Abram, since Abram has no children of his own. Sarai is barren. It is at this point we find Abram and Lot separating from one another, though. And with their separation from one another comes the separation from their destinies. Abram will inherit the land. Meanwhile, Lot will succumb to those who do evil. It is from this we learn an interesting lesson which is not far from us at all. And that is how the grass is not always greener. While it is true that we can barely fault Lot for choosing the better ground, what we can fault him with is how he begins on the outskirts of Sodom and Gomorrah and will eventually be sucked into them. That is exactly like sin though, isn't it? Sin has a way of dressing itself itself up as a nice thing, beautiful to behold. If only we had it, all would be well. It is like a mirage in the desert where we will chase and chase and chase, but find it only a deception played by the wasteland. So it is the case with Lot. Lot chooses what looks nice and appears to be like Eden. It is lush and beautiful, but whether Lot is aware of it or not, there is a darkness in the middle of the land, and that is the people who already inhabit it. Again, we find sin to be the exact same way. It whispers to us to come and follow, come and follow. And if we were to follow after it, we would have all of our heart's desires and more. We would have greater wealth, greater opportunity, a greater abundance of power and prestige. But at what cost? 
The cost is nothing more than your own destiny, and in many cases, our own eternal destiny. A separation from the divine plan, a separation with those who love you deeply, a separation from what is good and right, and ultimately, a separation from God himself. There is the clear and present warning for us in the story of Lot already. All because it looks nicer doesn't mean that it is the better choice. We must always be cautious in this life because sin will seek to dominate us by whatever means it can. Again, it will make itself look reasonable and logical under the circumstances, but even then it does not mean it is what we should be seeking. I can give an example of a time when this happened to me. Um, It was a few years ago now, and Carissa and I were in a bit of a deep bind. We needed better jobs, and in all honesty, we're in dire straits when it came to this. So I was willing to work anywhere. Okay, maybe not anywhere, but a lot of places. And thinking that it would be better for me to do so. So a particular job did open up, and I decided to, you know, go for it. I applied. Now this job had the whole package, good pay, good benefits. But there was a problem. I heard in the back of my head over and over and over again, No. I heard it further when I told my family uh, what the job was, and they would say, I'm not really sure that that job is right for you. And from my friends, I would hear the exact same thing. All the while, there was also a persistent no. It was right there. Well, I pushed all those things aside, (laughs) being me, being person and, you know, human, And I was thinking of only one thing, being able to provide for my family. It is the logical choice and the reasonable choice. It makes sense to take this job. I could do it. So I ended up going on my first day and throughout the day, all night that I was working, I had this continued, no. Well, what was the job? Well, it was a security officer at the prison. That night, as I drove home, I realized, or at least I gave in to the fact, I had been mistaken. It isn't that the job couldn't be done by me, I could do it, or that I couldn't handle it, I could. It was a recognition that this was not what God wanted, and it was not the right place for me at that time. I got home, and I wept because of my pride. I wept because I should have known better. I wept because of the inmates. And how there was no real difference between me and them, only God's grace. I wept for them. I wept for myself because this was supposed to be it. Finally. And deep down inside, I knew it wasn't. So I know the temptation that comes from the grass is always greener. I know the temptation to separate from the will of God. But don't be like me in this instance. Instead, learn from this mistake of mine and the mistake of Lot. We both thought that the grass was greener, but in truth, we were both dead wrong. We saw Eden, but in truth, there was something corrupt in the center of it. Something which we were supposed to avoid, but because of our sin, we sought to snatch it away instead. He did this because he, didn't, he thought he'd gain from the land. I did it because I thought I could fix all my problems on my own without God. That is the encouragement from this Lot story. Be cautious in life. Sin is always crouching, ready to pounce. Not everything which looks good is good. 
And very often we find ourselves in a greater sorrow for not being obedient and seeking wisdom than by jumping right into what we think is the right course. When in all reality, it is a course which also leads us further from where we should be. Now this is one of those sermons where I actually had two points. It's exciting. So along with Lot's story, though, we also have Abram's story. Now the two couldn't be more different. And immediately we see how the separation of Lot and Abram means something drastic. As mentioned before, it meant a separation of destinies. Of their heir apparent and the one who holds the promise. One can imagine how Abram must have felt in that moment. This is the last separation between he and his family that he has to deal with. Always Lot had been there up until this point, but not anymore. It is in this moment that God does something quite wonderful. He reminds Abram of the promise. And the promise is that not only would he receive all the land which he sees, but also that he would have offspring and descendants to match the dirt of the earth. Imagine that for a moment. Abram just lost all of his family. And yet God promises many offspring, a great wealth of family, to come to him. The only problem is this. Abram must still walk by faith. The truth is, Abram is not going to see all these descendants, is he? He will not see the great multitudes of his offspring. And in fact, Abram will die with just two children to his name, Ishmael and Isaac. Both will be blessed but only one will be the heir of the promise. So Abram is, just as his nephew was, in a situation which is similar to our own. By God's grace, he was given the faith to overcome the doubt and to be able to continue to follow after God's promises to him. Our situation is the same. We are called to a land we do not yet see, and we are given the promise of inheritance which we cannot yet touch. In other words, we have been given the promise, but we have been asked to wait. Just as the disciples were to wait. We often see in the New Testament this eager expectation, don't we? We are sure that the disciples believe Christ was coming in their generation. But as it was, they did not see the long wait, which was expected. How generations upon generations, thousands of years, would come before the coming of Jesus. They did not foresee how their generation was merely the first and that they were called to simply wait upon the Lord in faithfulness. We join in the chorus then of those who have been called to wait, to be patient, to trust, and to be faithful in our times of waiting. It is a hard thing to do. To wait until the time of the second coming. It is a hard thing to walk on this earth knowing that whatever we do for the glory of God is merely a prelude to things to come. But we also know that God is the God of promise. What keeps us going is that through the generations we have seen God remain faithful to his word. It is far easier perhaps for us to be faithful for this reason. I mean think about Abram. Abram was the first. He placed his faith in God, trusting in him to fulfill the promise. It is only with Sarai in Egypt, perhaps, that Abram has a hope to keep going. And maybe not even until later on in his life that the faith will be put to the test. 
And only then he will know the promises of God are very real and sure, and that Abram does not put his faith in God in vain. We, however, we see it all, and we know it all to be true. So for us to have seen what the Lord is capable of, and what he has accomplished, it gives us a firm foundation to remain hopeful and to remain faithful during this long walk in the desert places. And it gives us reason to not chase after those mirages in the desert. Because we know it is only if we keep our eyes on the prize, which is Jesus himself, that we will grasp the prize for ourselves. Now this leads me back to the second half of my own story. As you recall, I had accepted that job, despite it not being what God really wanted of me at the time. Do you know what I didn't know at that time? I had no idea that there would be a little church in a little town I had never been to. That's not true. We dropped our cat off out here because she was bad. (laughs) To a person, not just in the middle of nowhere. But I had been to once. I didn't know that there would be a little church seeking a pastor. I had no idea that this little church would, within five months of me submitting to the will of God, be calling me the pastor of that church. No idea. No idea that everything would turn out as it has and as it did. I had no idea that I was in the place where God was calling on me to be patient, to trust, to be faithful in my state. It was not easy to be. I consider that year to be the second now, Hardest year of my marriage, and the hardest year of my life overall, or at least the second. Nothing went right. Every door was a no. Every hope was dashed. In the end, though, I realized that it was all done for a particular purpose. That God had something else planned. And I was called to simply wait despite the struggles, the hardships, and the feeling of never being able to escape. And sometimes you still have that feeling, don't you? So my encouragement to you is don't chase after things just because they look easy. Likewise, be willing to wait upon the Lord rather than trust in your own devices. God has shown himself repeatedly to be good, to be loving, and to fulfill every promise that he has ever promised to us. Does that mean that things won't be hard? No. Of course there will be hard times. Whether it be sorrows through sickness, death, tragedies, and our own personal struggles where we fail. But even if this is the case, we know God is good. He is with us. And he will not abandon us even in these times of grief and sorrow and even in our own times of unknowing. So praise be to God. That he is for us and with us. Praise be to God that he has called us to wait. Because if he calls us to wait, it means that he has other plans for us which are much better and greater than the ones that we had planned for ourselves. It may not always appear that way. And we may not always understand it at the time. I know I don't. We may have to try to open a lot of doors only to find them closed, very firmly closed. But the great wait is worth waiting through if God is calling us to it. 
The only thing I know, only way I knew how to end this um, application point is with a quotation from Isaiah 40. And he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is for us. He will be with us. Even when we feel things are falling apart, He will be with us and He will never let us go. And so this naturally leads to the gospel. Naturally. Because in the gospel we find our origins, of course, and how we're all created in the image of God. That right now, being knit together in Deborah's womb, <laughs> she feels a lot of it. <laughs> There's a person there. And that person is created in the image of God, just like you, just like me. And right now we can rejoice at this. We can rejoice at our origins. We can rejoice at the origins of our faith where God called one man and that man was faithful and now here we are, his descendants. We're part of it. God promised Abram, you. (laughs) And here you are. I think that's a promise fulfilled. And so when we look at it again, we look at our origins and we look at how humanity is creating the image of God and how we all have sanctity and dignity and worth to life and how this is all wonderful. And this is where we have to begin because the world again is out there saying, you're not worth it. The world is saying, you have no dignity. You are a machine. You are stardust. As pretty as that sounds, it means nothing. But we also see here the fall. We see it with Abram and Lot in particular. We see Lot and how he chased after something which he was not supposed to chase after. He chased after that which was easier, which made a lot more sense. He chased after something which ultimately is going to be his demise. And that's part of the fall. Mirage is in the desert. The grass is always greener. Sin tickling at our ears to follow. What can save us? Abram shows us the way. Faith. Faith in God. And that faith in God ultimately leads to our story of redemption, where Jesus Christ, the offspring, the one that we keep on talking about in the kids' Bible, that God has a rescue plan. He does. We're getting there, even in the little kids' Bible. And, he keeps on show, and she keeps on showing us that redemption is not that far away. And that is coming. And it's going to come through Jesus Christ, who redeems us from our sin. He redeems us from our guilt, most importantly. And so for all the guilt that we have stored up against us, for all the times that we were like Lot, and all the times that we were like Abram in Egypt... That guilt is taken away if we're in Jesus. And it's scattered to the wind no more to be seen. If you're in Jesus. 
Amen. Praise God for Jesus. Praise God for the redemption found there. It is a great redemption. We get to see it. We get to experience this by faith. Wonderful. And you know what? It's leading somewhere. Like the verse we have today in our bulletin from 1 John. Those who have Jesus have life. Life that is eternal. Life that does not end. Life that continues on without the pain and the sorrow of sin and corruption and deceit and despair. We're getting there. It starts here, though. It starts with each of us. And it started and was perfected by Jesus. So, in Him, cling to. Don't cling to yourself. You'll just drown. But Jesus, He can pull you out. Let us pray. Father, we thank you because you are the God of promises. You are the God who says, be patient, wait. I am going to fulfill every promise to you. Trust in my holy name. And you have shown us over and over and over again that you are that God who has fulfilled the promises. That you are the God who has continued to keep us who has continued to show that we belong to you if we are believing in Jesus. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to renew our strength. We ask that we would learn from this and that we would be patient to wait upon your holy name and to check doors, but to make sure that they are your doors that we are opening. We ask, Lord, that you would ultimately lead us further into the truth that you have given us through Jesus. And that ultimately, Lord, the faith which we saw and we see in Abram, that we would also have the same faith to follow after you and to trust in your holy name. We thank you, Lord. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.